There's this trick that we all do to get through our day. Go, 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 go! We take a box, and into that box, we place all the horrors of the world. And we close the box and pretend it doesn't exist. Only some of us, we've lost our ability to pretend. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the B-Movie Podcast. This is a special episode, um, and... Uh, with me uh, on this special episode is uh, Scott, who is quickly becoming the co-host, uh, <laughs> the co-host of uh, of the B Movie Podcast. And today we're actually talking about a movie that I feel like, and, and it was actually Scott's suggestion. Um, we're talking about a movie that actually is nowhere on. It feels like nowhere n- near the level it should be on the Twitter sphere on film Twitter, and that's Michael Bay's. Uh, Netflix Netflix debut Six Underground. Um, Scott, I have to ask, why did you choose this movie? Like, it was it's the perfect B movie. Um, it's the perfect topic for the B movie podcast. But I'm I'm curious, uh, why? (laughs) Well, you know, kind of for that reason. I mean, I was I got uh, you know, one of those little uh, I don't know, Netflix trailers or mm-hmm. an alert on my account or something caused me to see the uh, the trailer and then when it said it was Michael Bay, I was like, "Are you serious?" I mean, this is the kind of movie that like in the 1990s would have gone to the theater and made, you know, back then a couple hundred million dollars and been a huge hit. And I was like, it's on Netflix? Really? And so my first thought was kind of skepticism. Like, is this going to be some kind of scaled down, like, cheapo Michael Bay movie? You know, like, is this some kind of career demotion for him <laughs> or something? Yep. And uh, and so it was just, it seemed like such a oddity, novelty, whatever you want to call it, uh, that I was I was half joking and half serious when I said, we need to do an episode on this movie, sight unseen. I hadn't even seen it. All I'd seen was the trailer when I texted you, and you were like, "Uh oh, it's on now. We're we're gonna have to do it." And so, uh, so here we are. No, absolutely. And it, it and at least for me, and we'll get into this later. It was the perfect. It's the perfect choice. It's like, it's. Uh, yeah, it's definitely the perfect choice. So, like, at the top of the show, what we're going to do is we're just going to go ahead and give you our where to find us, like, our social media pages, just so that we can get that out of the way. Um, so, Scott, where can people find you on social media and on the web and, you know, all of your good things? Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter at mscott underscore Phillips. Uh, gets a little complicated. Scott Phillips is a crime novelist. Michael Phillips is a film critic. Uh, so I decided I would try to differentiate myself somehow. So I have this whole like F. Scott Fitzgerald thing going now uh, <laughs> with M. Scott underscore Phillips. But that's my Twitter handle. Uh, and then I do a, a little segment called The Screen Scene uh, for a CBS affiliate here in Georgia. And so uh, that can be found at WRBL. Dot com. Absolutely. And I highly, highly, highly uh, recommend that you guys go see um, 
Scott's videos the, uh, from the screen scene because he's reviewing all the all the big things. And if you love his work here, you're definitely gonna love the um, the reviews that he has. Uh, and it's every Friday that they post, uh, so that you guys can get your taste of. Uh, exactly what's out there and um, if he recommends it or not. Uh, and yeah, he, it takes a whole uh, three minutes, three minutes, 15 seconds to watch one of them. So it's also the lazy way to get a film review. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also additionally, he like, you know, he does cover things like Netflix films. I, I definitely wanted to put that out there because a couple of your last things um, have been Netflix based, which is great because like I, I think and we're going to probably get into this is that like I think that there's so much umbrage and toxicity about Netflix and it being like this disruptor um, that like, you know, I think we get away from the fact that Netflix what they're starting to cook with gas to be honest like some of their like their films they're starting to connect in a big yep. way and we'll yep. get into that with this one um but right now what we wanted to do is kind of set a baseline for you guys uh like we have been like we did with the Scorsese episode but we're going to make it a little bit smaller because this is not a Michael Bay episode, though I'm pretty sure that at a certain point uh, we will talk about Bay because he is the perfect B-movie maniac. Um, but like we did uh, on our Martin Scorsese episode, we're going to talk about favorite Bays. I mean, I remember day one we came in, I strapped him in a car, we're going 60, 70 miles an hour, and there's another car chasing, and guns are firing, and Melanie Laurent is, is yelling sort of in French in the back, and... And then he's like, this is so great, you know, because I, I'm just, I feel like I'm in it. And that's what I try to do. I try to have the actors feel like it create enough chaos around them so that it, it, it feels more real. And, um, uh, you know, some people will do it in pieces or in blue screen, and I, I like them to feel it. So with that, I want to go ahead and hand it over to Scott and see what his favorite Bay or two Bay films like he can. He doesn't have to just necessarily say one, but we're just kind of get a baseline for what we like from the director. So I'm going to hand this over to Scott and then I'll go ahead and chime in on my my end. Yeah, you know, uh, interestingly enough, and I guess maybe it's kind of a testament to, uh, to his longevity as a filmmaker Mm -hmm. is my my favorite of his earlier films is the rock yep and uh i mean i just love it with uh you know i mean sean connery nicholas cage you know ed harris <laughs> mm -hmm. uh it's awesome i mean it's as ludicrous as anything else that he makes but there's something about kind of the ed harris uh, sean connery combination that just seems to anchor that film you know, yeah, it like it somehow makes the the uh, the unrealistic uh, seem serious and 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 seem real. And so <laughs> and and, you know, when you're talking a movie that's what is it now, 22, 23 years old, yeah. something like that, um, uh, you know, uh, we, there hadn't been so much water under the action bridge at that point. Mm -hmm. You know, at that point, I mean, he was kind of pushing action films to places that they hadn't been before. And then it's kind of like everybody caught up and then kind of started pushing things further. And, and it kind of became like a CGI competition, uh, after that, basically who had the best, you know, effects team, 
mm-hmm. uh, doing the the action sequences. And so uh, I just have always been a fan uh, of that movie. And then uh, and then my my second one uh, would uh, would actually be um, Thirteen Hours. That's a that's a legitimately great like action drama like yep. it, it just no no qualms about it i think that people also have slept on that one i think we ta- we actually talked about that film when it was released and um it had been a while since i had reviewed a film and that was like one of my first like comeback reviews uh to film dispenser i had gone through some some wackadoo stuff in 2015 which left me uh like creatively just empty and um but it was weird because that was a movie that kind of inspired me to get back to writing and less podcasting uh, on Film Dispenser back in, like, what was that, like, four years ago. Um, it's a, just a strong damn movie. Like, and he, like, I think what also gets lost about Bay is just how verbose of a filmmaker he is. Like, I think that the whole weird, like, un-PC comedy stuff gets in the way of the fact that this is a guy who, like Tony Scott was a guy who was always on the forefront and is continually on the forefront of of style and technology and just trying to test himself to be different with his films. Like he like I think he does like I think that he is like a disciple of Tony Scott. And from that Tony Scottness comes that whole passion of what Lucas talked about but never really did, which was be experimental with your films. And yeah, 13 Hours is one of those like the things where it all comes together. I really like that film. Um, it's actually my second favorite um, Bay film uh, or like my my like if we're talking like favorite Bay films, it, it would be my second. My actually my first Um I'm glad that you mentioned The Rock because I was trying to figure out, like, I'm like, The Rock is highly entertaining. And it's a film that you could watch today. And other than Sean Connery and Ed Harris, uh, it's kind of a film that feels very modern. And mm-hmm. it's, it's shot very freshly. So it's still not, it it, it hasn't, it aged a, a lot better than its counterparts from 1996. Other than maybe, say, Mission Impossible, the original. Right. Which... which Think about that. It's been 22 years since, or almost 23 years since um, the first Mission Impossible came out. That's just <laughs> wild to me. Um, yeah, it is. My favorite is actually uh, Pain and Gain. Um, oh. <laughs> it just, I, I feel like it's... I know that a lot of people have said that it's like Michael Bay doing the Coen brothers, but if you really watch that movie, I actually recently rewatched it just because like, you know, um, occasionally like I'll find something and I'll be like, you know what? I loved that movie. I need to re-see it just to make sure that I, I loved it as much as I did. And I did. Um, it's, I feel like it's the one movie that the rock didn't think about his image. And he gave us a truly great performance out of it. I mean, he got, Bay got so much out of these guys. Like, um, it's what, uh, Mark Wahlberg, Dwayne Johnson, and Anthony Mackie. Like, and in the movie, if people don't know about this, it's a true life story about these bodybuilders that try to extort money from a guy who's played by Tony Shalhoub and how it goes terribly fucking wrong. Um, and 
but it it's very much so of that Coen Brothers like modern noir where a simple act a simple crime turns very sideways very quickly um and oddly enough it's written by the architects of the MCU um Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely who MCU heads should know are like literally the architects of they're the screenwriters for I think at least the last like almost all of the Avengers movies if I'm not mistaken uh, I, I don't have time to to deal with the exact details of the MCU it's we're not here to talk about that we're here to talk about Michael Bay but yeah those are my two uh, those are my two favorites um, 13 hours in um, pain and gain Cool, and that's more. You know, you're in the uh, with both your picks. You're in more the the modern Bay era. Yep. Uh, as opposed to, I'm um, kind of like bookends. You know. Yes. Uh, remembering one from uh, yesteryear, and then uh, a recent one that I thought was really good. Absolutely, but I will never, never not sleep. Like I will, I will always stand for Armageddon. Just because it's stupid, silly, and really yep. big budget. Um, and I kind of feel the same way about Bad Boys. That's what I was deciding between, <laughs> was Bad Boys and The Rock. Yes, so. absolutely. I, I I have to ask you, because we haven't really talked about Bay at all. Um, I'm not feeling the Bad Boys 3 because Michael Bay is not involved with it. Uh, how are you feeling about that? Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of agree. I mean, you know, for him, it's so much the visual flair and the kind of kinetic editing and everything like that. And, and I think that in my opinion and, and transformers fans out there, you know, may shoot me or whatever, but, <laughs> uh, uh, I say that as a Michael Bay joke, not as a comment on our current <laughs> world. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, but, um, I I thought he kind of lost himself in that stuff. You know, that's where he really kind of got the the reputation of being like, you know, well, how many edits per film does he have a million? You know, that kind of thing, because mm-hmm. uh, it's just so quick cut and so chopped up and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but I think actually, as we'll talk about, you know, getting into this new film uh, that he's really still uh, got his his visual mojo uh, now as to whether or not you like what, uh, you know, Netflix has to offer with this new film, uh, maybe a matter of personal taste, but there isn't any arguing that he's definitely still a, a, a visual master. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And, uh, so at this point, why don't we go ahead and actually get into the film? Um, I think that just to forewarn people, I think that we're going to be talking a little bit about Netflix and insider baseball stuff because I think it it definitely warrants it because of like when we start well when we start talking about it, you guys will understand. So if you guys aren't into that, maybe skip a little bit ahead before and then we'll get into the movie itself. But I think it does merit and warrant a conversation. Right, guys we're back and so six underground released by netflix on friday the 13th um so like you know you watch the trailer and you see just ginormous fucking action and when you watch it or at least when i watched it 
after the fin- after the thing finished, I just literally wanted to know everything I needed to know about this film because it, it brings up a lot of conversation about Netflix and what they're doing. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you, Scott, is how does a two hundred million dollar? They say it's one hundred and fifty to two hundred million. I'm gonna go say two hundred million. How does a a, a movie budgeted at two hundred million dollars, starring Ryan Reynolds and a host of international stars? Um, with a cameo, with a 30-minute cameo by Dave Franco. Like, that's the kind of movie this movie is, folks. <laughs> Has This movie is so fucking large that Michael Bay went back to the Bad Boys 2, like, like way of making a film, making a movie and uh, an extra mini-movie. And but instead of the mini movie being in Cuba at the be- at the end of the film, your mini movie is at the beginning of the movie, set in Italy, um, starring Dave Franco. Um, <laughs> uh, right, right. <laughs> why isn't this like Scott? I have to ask you. Why do you think this movie isn't on like IMAX screens around the world right now, at least for a week, to take in at least fifty to one hundred million dollars in the U.S. Yeah, I uh, it it surprises me. I I don't know if it is a commentary on action films based on you know no pre existing property. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's not a Bond movie. It's not a Mission Impossible movie. It's not a Star Wars movie. It's not a comic book movie. You have all this well established IP out there. Uh, that they base these big, you know, $200 million movies on that go into theaters uh, and then look at whether or not they can break a billion or whatever when uh, when it comes out. And so I don't know if we're so far gone with that uh, that they were afraid that it would go into theaters and, and like, you know, barely break even or something like that. And And at times I don't quite understand the Netflix... A business model, uh, you know, it, it concerns me sometimes uh, when the world subscribes to Netflix and yet they're still borrowing money to make content. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, hmm, you know, if you've if you've already kind of saturated the market and everybody that you bump into has a Netflix subscription, you know, you kind of done your job on selling your product how are you going to keep from going broke in the future? Uh, I mean, you're talking if if the rumors and 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 estimates are true uh, that they probably spent three hundred fifty million dollars on this film and the Irishman combined. Yep, yep. And, and, and <laughs> let's you know, let's make a side note. Every single fucking dollar is on the screen for both movies. That's the shocking yep. part. Yep. And 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 the interesting thing is in totally different ways. Yes. Because, you know, the Irishman is all about the de-aging uh, technology and trying to allow them to show these characters aging over a period of multiple decades. And so it's very non-flashy. And so then it's interesting that when you see a similar budget devoted to flash and style uh like it is in six underground how amazing it can look and uh and i mean that opening action sequence the opening piece in italy that you're talking about that's kind of like a big prologue uh to the movie 
was just, I mean, stunning. I mean, it, it's one of the the best action sequences I've seen in years, uh, especially because of the scale. Yes. Like, you know, some people would say, well, you know, what about John Wick or something like that? Well, yeah, but these are two completely different things. John Wick is, you know, the hand-to-hand combat the choreography of it all, the stunt work of it all. And while there have been chases on, you know, horses and motorcycles and stuff like that, it doesn't approach the scale of this film with, you know, a a dozen cars careening through Italy, chasing each other and shooting at each other and, you know, helicopters and airplanes and and all of this kind of stuff. So when I say action sequence, uh, you know, I'm not downplaying the, uh, the martial arts and, and hand to hand type action. I just, kind of put them in two different categories absolutely and you're absolutely right to do that i mean like you said like john wick is is one thing and this is entirely fucking different this is this is michael bay unleashed and like again like when you have something this special and it is special guys when you watch this movie if you haven't already you're just gonna sit there certain scenes with your jaw dropped that Somebody actually let Michael Bay do whatever he wanted and uh, and and carry it to the extent that he carries it. I think that it's essential that it's basically like an R-rated film. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that may be the answer to our question is bean counters probably sat back and are thinking, what's the last R-rated action movie that made over two hundred million dollars? <laughs> you know, you don't have the PG-13 to cast as wide a net as possible. No. And so that that may also be one of the issues about how this, this project was conceived. But, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that you don't see in other action films. And your reaction will be, man, I can't believe they let him go that far. Like, you know, in, in your typical, like, car crash in a... In a in a movie, you know, you'll see the car, car you know, maybe careen off the road and, and hit some kind of uh, bridge abutment or something like that and just blow up in a fireball and that's it. And in this movie, I mean, when they hit stuff, bodies go flying out of the car. Somebody comes flying through the windshield, you know, limbs get lopped off. I mean, it's just like I mean, it's just carnage. It is, but it's gleeful carnage. Something yes. that, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> something that I think that's where like Twitter has been taking a lot of umbrage on this film with is the fact that it's gleeful. Like it's literally, it's 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 fifteen year old Michael Bay, the inner fifteen year old Michael Bay rubbing his hands together, giddily laughing at the destruction and the wanton like gleeful gore that he's able to produce. Like right. I'm pretty sure that his gore budget alone probably rivals some indie movies like entire budget. <laughs> right. Be- well, be- because of how much is just like he's like like it's weird because you can see where his mind is going with it. It's like I want to make something where when a car crash happens, it actually happens the way that it does. And then somebody like, say, Sony going, no, 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 you can't do that. That that's that that'll bring us into the NC-17 territory. And yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And it, uh, it, I, I almost think that this is a case where 
once directors, other direct, other action directors that have been playing in PG-13 Londia see this movie and see what it's almost like a calling card. Like Netflix is kind of smart in this regard where they just let him do whatever he wanted. Right. And when you let Michael Bay do whatever he want, I mean, of course, it's going to cost a pretty penny. But I think that over the last 25 years, he's proven, especially with those Transformer movies, he knows how to do ginormous budgeted movies. And when they see this, I think that other directors may come actually to Netflix and go, hey, can you give me the Michael Bay treatment where I can just make an R-rated action movie unrepentantly and not have to worry about you guys interfering? And when they go, yeah, sure, 200 million, nothing. We'll figure it out. They're going to come calling. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because the the discussion had always been that Netflix is the corporate demon that's going to kill the theater going experience. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is, is if you hear, and I don't, I don't, I really don't get the vibe from the directors that, that have given these interviews that they're just saying what Netflix wants them to say. No, but everything from Wheelman to hold the dark to the Irishman to six underground Everybody seems to be saying, they just let me be. Mm-hmm. They just let me do my thing and trusted my way of doing it. And the movie that I handed in was the movie I wanted to make. And so it's oddly the antithesis of what everybody was saying, that it was going to be the kind of the corporatizing of, of filmmaking. And so the funny thing is there's an argument that you just look to your local multiplex and that's where you find that Yep. with Disney controlling every little micromanaged uh, bit of, you know, Marvel movies, Star Wars movies, Pixar movies, uh, everything like that. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, after a while it becomes so much formula is because nobody's willing to kind of do anything daring or shake things up. No, absolutely. And this movie is like, like if it was, if it had a subtitle for, uh, for like, you know, its release, it would be AKA the disruption movie because literally this movie is, at least to me, like it's the antithesis of, of everything that we get in action films in this on the big screen. It's like one of the things I loved about it is that it's <laughs> I don't know whether it's the the screenwriters um uh Rhett Reese and Paul uh Winnick that did this, but it's told in a very kind of conversational way that you don't see action films told. And by that, I mean, guys, and I think Scott already knows where I'm going with this, is that it's it's like a guy telling you it's like a 12 year old telling you this really pepped up story. He's he's hopped up on on a certain amount of caffeine and he keeps on going, oh, wait, 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 wait. I forgot to tell you this really important <laughs> point. Let me go back and tell you this shit. Right. And like he tells us all the stuff at the beginning and then goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what? by the way, I got to tell you about these all these different characters that I have. And they're really cool. It it also plays to me like the first film in a franchise. Exactly. This definitely it, does feel like a franchise setup, but not in the normal way. Like it's mm-mm. not it's not it's not like I don't even know how to put it. It's not like like a Marvel film. It where yeah. like they're already setting up things in the future. It's just right. literally 
it, it's giving you this world. It tells you this. It tells you these two specific stories, like the first thirty minutes, and then the other hour and forty-five minute story. And they don't try to lay in like, oh, there's a secret ghost network or whatever bullshit that might be the way that Hollywood now tells yeah. like franchises. Yeah, it, it it wraps up each plot thread. There's mm-hmm. nothing left hanging that winks at you and says, see you next time. It 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 wraps everything up. It's fully uh, you know, self-contained. I think the I think the Mission Impossible analogy is the most appropriate one you know in mission impossible most of the time the most recent movies it's changed a little bit yeah but most of the time it's just the characters that carry over Mm -hmm. and there may be a reference to a previous film or something like that but at least until the last couple it hadn't been absolutely essential that you have seen the ones that came before to enjoy the current one and and so that's the way this is to me it feels like a film where there could be future adventures by these same characters, but it stands alone as a film, you know, on its own if they choose not to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so much so that that first 30 minutes is kind of like our introduction is like last time with Mm -hmm. the six underground. um, This is what happened. And, but there's like, like um, what I like, what Rennick and Reese do is that they give just enough information and history about these people that we don't feel cheated or that there's right. going to be more done in the future. But we know that there's going to be like, if they do a six underground part two or seven underground, right. even though like, <laughs> right. and, and that's fun. That's the fun about the movie is that it's called six underground, but realistically there's seven people. Right. Uh, um, exactly. and, um, but, um, and I like yeah, that. It, uh, Go ahead. It, yeah. You know, well, uh, what I was going to say about uh, as far as the uh, the the franchise and and things of that nature, you know, another interesting thing, another way that they kind of deviate uh, from that formula uh, is I, I actually paused it when he uttered this line, but there's a line uh, of voiceover where Ryan Reynolds's character says, and basically that's how we all got together. Something along those lines. Yes. And when you pause that, it's literally the halfway point of the film. Yes. It was like literally like an hour and four minutes in and like an hour and four minutes and change to go. So that lets you know how it kind of plays with the formula. It has a lot of the elements that you might expect, but they don't really deliver them the way that you would expect. Absolutely. Um, Wernick and Reese wrote, uh, try saying that 20 times really fast. Um, <laughs> I don't they, know if I could say it once really fast. <laughs> they wrote Zombieland, which I feel like is the analogous to this movie. It's like what Zombieland did for zombie movies and horror movies in a weird way. Six Underground does for action ensemble movies like the Mission Impossible movies. Right. It just takes it and goes, fuck you, and it puts it into a grinder in the best way possible and just spits it out and makes it a little bit of a meta commentary, but also like it knows it knows the tricks of the tropes and constantly veers right instead of left like one of the things i loved about the movie was that of course there's always a romance right and you think it's going to be ryan reynolds character and um either five or two 
uh, five played by Adriana Ajorna, and then uh, two played by the great Melanie Laurent, Laurent which we're, we're going to have to talk about um, her um, her role and her character, everything that about her in a, in a few. But I love how it just doesn't do that, and it decides to pair two other characters that at first you think, why the fuck are they doing that? And then when you realize after the character work is done, it makes perfect sense. Rather than trying to shoehorn somebody into into a a, a B plot line that would not that would just be like, oh fuck, are you kidding me? Ryan Reynolds in a like a relate. Of course, it's going to be like this stupid bullshit, but it's not. And that's like that's where I like key in on this movie is not as stupid as I hear people telling saying that it is. Um, because it knows the tropes. It knows itself well enough to know that you don't like you don't make those bad turns. Yep. No, exactly. You're right. Well, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, I hate getting into these conversations about it's so bad it's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, those kinds of things. Because I don't think his movie falls into that category at all. No, uh, but you see things on on social media and everything, and it's so divisive. It's like. You know, oh, God, that movie's just, you know, terrible and, you know, or my favorite word, stupid mm-hmm. and uh, and and things like that. And then you got other people who just absolutely love it. And so I think it just comes down to if you have historically embraced material like this, you're going to love it. Yes. If you're not usually a big kind of over the top don't look for realism kind of action film fan, then you're probably not going to like it, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and it's one of those things like occasionally I'll get somebody who like, if, uh, if I gave this like four out of five stars, okay, just say, and, and then I gave, I don't know, Jojo rabbit four out of five stars or marriage story, four out of five stars. People would come to me and say, so you mean to tell me that you think that six underground is as good as marriage story? Are you crazy? And my response is, I'm rating it for what it's trying to be. Exactly. I'm not rating it in some holistic, you know, kind of thing uh, where, you know, Godfather 2 is a 5 and, you know, 6 Underground is a 4. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you like big, you know, bombastic kind of action films, uh, that just, you know, put their foot down and just keep their foot on the gas the whole time. And you got kind of the quippy hero and some interesting side characters and stuff like that. This is a really good example of that. And so therefore it might get the four out of five stars when I'm grading it as what it is. If you're asking me how good of a Shakespeare adaptation this is, I'd say not very. <laughs> so, so you know, it just depends on on how you're looking at things. And so, you know, at times I'll have people talk to me about like my year in list. Like, yeah. dude, how could you put a horror movie on your? Because you know, horror is always so ghettoized by yes. everybody. And I'm like, because that was the best horror movie that I saw this year, and I think that genre needs to be represented on my list. And you're absolutely right. Like, like you, you zero in on on the point exactly, which is is that you have to come to each movie 
on its terms. And exactly like every movie, I think that uh, like, you know, to go back to Scorsese, Scorsese has said, uh, and I and probably other people have said this too, is that a movie is a, is essentially a, an agreement between an audience and a filmmaker. And at the beginning, you make a handshake and whether that handshake is something that you, you end up connecting with or not connecting with is could like anything in between could be the part of the filmmaker or part of the audience. And, you know, I feel like as critics, people have like, or people who call themselves critics, um, don't approach films like that sometimes. Like they, they, yeah. they, they like the, they like, they like a marriage story, but could never see themselves liking something because it was directed by Michael Bay, but, well, but not meaning it, it on its terms. Yeah. And, and that's the interesting thing is, is this seems to be the art form that people do this and no other. Yep. Like you don't see somebody pick up the new, you know, Snoop Dogg release and go, wow, man, this is a shitty Bruce Springsteen album. <laughs> You're absolutely and, right. You know, or somebody going to a gallery and looking at the Mona Lisa and going, well, that dude's no Jackson Pollock. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it only seems to be in film that everybody kind of has to mix these metaphors and, right. and, and be like, you know, well, you know, this is, you know, gets a half a star and sucks when you compare it to parasite. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, if you're going to tell me I'm stranded on a desert Island and which one of these movies do I want to keep forever? Parasite would probably be my choice. But then again, you'd have to ask me, what other movies am I getting to keep? Because if I'm not getting to keep any action movies, maybe it would be this movie. Absolutely. Um, you know, it just, yeah. it just depends on the type of thing that you're into and, you know, the itch that you're wanting to scratch. And so I didn't sit down to this going, hmm, I wonder if this is going to change my top film of 2019. I sat down to this and said, man, I could use a good action flick. This will be fun. And it was. Absolutely. And that's that's the thing that I feel is is the prescient point with this is it's two of them. It's that you really shouldn't have to fucking apologize for for liking or loving Six Underground, which I feel like so many people are doing online. Yeah, it's fun for an action movie. It's like uh, just just stand by your you're a stronger critic if you stand by your opinion without putting qualifiers on it. Yep. Like. Yep. You know, say you occasionally, like occasionally, occasionally somebody will ask me to talk to like a high school class or mm -hmm. something like that. And, uh, they'll want to know about, you know, writing either, you know, criticism or, you know, just any kind of opinion piece. It doesn't necessarily have to be a review. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I always tell them is have an opinion. Yep. I mean, that sounds maybe silly or stupid or obvious, uh, but that's what I always say. I'm like, don't tell me, well, it could be argued that. Well, is that what you're arguing mm -hmm. or are you just telling me or some people think that or, you know, those kind of qualifiers. It's like, well, what did you think? Yeah. And so I, uh, I run a local film society. You know that you've yep. actually been kind of my my silent partner, co-curator <laughs> uh, of it. I pick your brain all the time for things that might be good to show to folks. Yeah. And when they talk to me, you know, it's almost like I'm on some kind of pedestal. And they're, you know, just these lowly people with, you know, bad movie taste or something. I can't stand that. And they'll be like, 
well, you know, it's it's kind of a guilty pleasure, but I watch blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, don't use that phrase. Yeah. Don't don't use the phrase guilty pleasure. I hate that phrase It's like like what you like and don't apologize for it. There ain't any right or wrong answer in any of this. No. Most of the time, the reason I think that film critics choose the movies that they choose and there's so much overlap in the movies that they choose mm-hmm. is I think that you could just label the list the most original films of 2019. You are because 100% right. Because we see so much stuff. I mean, we see more movies than the average person could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. And so what sticks out is the people doing something different. Yep. Whereas the other people who don't see 11 million movies <laughs> uh, in a year, Ford v. Ferrari may be the best thing that they saw this year. Yeah, absolutely. And there ain't anything wrong with that. No, there's absolutely not. But um, you... you, you you hit on a very like a, a very prescient point with this. And I assure you guys, we are going to get back to six underground. This is all having to do with six underground. If you really think about it, but um, it's, it's the fact that it's the originality. Like, I think that's the reason why we both sh- like, it's, it's, it's a couple of reasons why we both share our, like the favorite movie of the year. Like, I'm not going to ruin it here because that's for your own like posting and stuff, but we do share this, the same film. That's our favorite film of the year. And part of it is part of it is the genre that it's being told in because it's one of our favorite genres. Uh, but the other is the originality in which it's approached you've not i've not seen anything like this before in the way that it's told and the way that it's like the entire film as a whole package it's completely an original film though the filmmaker has been working towards something like this um and that's wherein lies the umbrage with with a lot of critics is that they go with like you said like it's a hive mind it's like the reason why you see like the like if you go to the National Board of Reviews top 10 films of 2019 I can guarantee you that most critics will have about 60 to 70% of those films on their list in some order and a lot of that has to do with like you were saying like the originality in which the 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 formula is approached but um that shouldn't stop anybody from just outright loving a movie. Like um, there's a movie that uh, like I just saw recently, I was catching up and I saw ready or not. And I fucking adore that movie. It's going to make my <laughs> top 10. It's such it, a, blast. It's a blast. Yeah, it, it is. It doesn't do anything different. I've seen this type of story, but just told differently. So it's not an original movie, but it's the energy. It's yep. the performances. It's the yep. direction. It, it it won me over. It it bowled me over to mo- so much that I rewatched the movie like like the next day because it was so entertaining. It, but it's gonna make my top ten. I already know it. It has a place in there because I didn't have I I could not tell you how, like how much I just bowled over with laughter every time something happened very violent. But it's that kind of movie. That's my taste. I try to tell people and like I know that you do the same thing like we're we're in the business of telling people that film is art but every piece of film is art and you don't have to feel guilty about liking something. Will I agree with you? Probably not. If you saw if you ca- if you call 
2018's Venom, your favorite movie of all time. I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna be mad at you, but what I am gonna say is this is that maybe you need to see a couple of more movies just yep. to kind of open your eyes, but I'm never going to sit there and go, huh. Because right. I'm a film fan too. And if somebody were to ever do that to me during the course of my life, it was only because I was I'm I'm such I was like as a kid, I was such a little defiant prick that when people did do that to me with the movies that I loved, I just got more defiant and said, fuck you. I'm going to go down that rabbit hole. You don't like you. What? You don't like they live. I'm going to go down that rabbit hole and try to figure out everything that I every movie that's like they live. And I'm going to find it. I'm going to be I'm going to have opinions about it better than yours. But a lot of people are not like that. They look and they're insulted by a critic's like looking down on them, their condescension, which they absolutely should be insulted by condescension. Like, yeah, I'm not a con. I don't want to condescend to somebody. If somebody finds Six Underground amazing, then good. I'm glad. Um, it's just, it's very weird to me that we, we've gotten to that point in, and I think it's a lot to do with social, social, social networking or social media making us closer or trying to bring us closer and all in actuality, what it's done is made a bunch of people yep. assholes online. Well, and, and yeah, and, and what it's done is, is it's given people the ability to tell you you're stupid in real time. Yes. You know, when, when you wrote a review and it was in a newspaper, it was in a magazine or what have you, I don't know, there might've been some letter to, letter to the editor uh, that came trickling in, or you might bump into somebody uh, at a film festival or on the street or something who says, man, I couldn't believe that you didn't like, you know, whatever or another. I love that movie. Uh, but with the internet and social media and all these things, and I mean, I sound like father time, but the bottom line <laughs> is I'm 50. And so I did live in a world where all this stuff didn't exist. And so what happens now is I think there's this fear of the instant feedback that you're going to put an opinion out there and a bunch of people are just going to pounce on you telling you how, you know, what kind of film critic are you? Oh my God, I can't believe that you like that. And, uh, and you know, that you'll somehow be, you know, jumped on by the thought police, uh, or the criticism police. Uh, and so therefore, you know, you start having people kind of assume, or, or vouch for the the popular opinion more. No, absolutely. I mean, we saw that this year with Joker. I mean, think about it. Out of out of out of Toronto, you saw critics like give that movie a fuse praise, and then between it going uh, it premiering at Toronto to its release in October, which is literally just a month, literally a month, it turned into this punk rock like defiant like people are gonna get fucking killed in this movie like this movie is terrible because it's irresponsible and i just sat there and i was mystified by that by the fact that like you turn this into this weird political thing where i mean i know films are political but you're not you're not giving the movie you're not you're not you're not critiquing the movie on the movie's terms you're making it this point to where you can feel like your choice of being a writer a film critic wasn't like i don't know like wasn't the wrong decision i mean you, you wanted to be a real journalist quote-unquote real journalist and then all of a sudden you just decide to like put that into your your reviewing which 
I guess. But at the same time, it's this weird, tricky, like downward slope when people have a pin, like when people have, it's almost like they have an agenda for a movie. Like I can feel like Six Underground is an agenda movie for certain writers that they're going to just look at it and not just go, hey, you know what? This is a this is an action movie. It didn't work for me. It was too schizophrenic, whatever. They're going to say this is the death of cinema. You know, Netflix (laughs) giving giving Michael Bay 200 million dollars to be irresponsible. And you know what, guys? I've fucking seen that review. I have seen that review on on at least three different websites that I that I continually go to and I just shake I just shake my head. I mean, like is it like am I wrong in that, Scott? Like in, in the way that I I'm looking at this and I'm like, you know, can't just a, a movie be reviewed on its own terms? <laughs> well, you know, and then the other thing is is it's like these movies get reviewed in a vacuum. Yes. Like when you when you read things or hear things along the lines of, well, you know, it was just kind of stupid or it was, you know, not realistic or, oh, man, some of the dialogue really made me groan and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, have you ever seen a movie like this before? Yeah. Exactly. You know, Want to go back to uh, Rambo First Blood Part 2? You know, some other things that are considered like classic action films and ask me if some of your criticisms don't apply to those films, too. I mean, you know, we're not watching a documentary uh, about a team going into some country to pull off some covert op or something like that. Of course, it's not realistic. I mean, you know, the average people would probably get killed in the very first shootout of any action (laughs) film ever made, you know. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not that realistic. Now, once again, you got to look at this and ask yourself, what kind of movie are you watching? It not being realistic would be a legit beef for saving private Ryan. Yeah. If you're trying to immerse me in the quote unquote realities of D day and the days that followed and some guy like a Rambo figure comes in and single-handedly wipes everybody out. And you're trying to tell me uh, that that's really the way that it was being in world war two. Then yeah, I'd call bullshit on you. Absolutely. But, or, th- but the issue is that's not what this movie is. It's not, it's not like, like it's like some people are going in expecting this movie to be just mercy, which like, you know, like a docudrama, which Okay, let's be perfectly fucking honest is that this is not a docudrama. There's not there, like I mean they this is a movie that takes place partially in a place called fucking Turkestan. They put Turkey and <laughs> Afghanistan. The of your choice. <laughs> exactly. Put it fucking together and they have they have like the political rule dictator that they're trying to like overthrow is like the most Russian McRussian that you that ever did Russian. And it's like, where do you think that rea- like, I mean, I have a, like, I have, I have an advice, I have a piece of advice to any writer that decides that the, fa- they, that Six Underground is not realistic. Okay, then go watch the, go watch the Netflix series Spy, starring, uh, starring, um, uh, Shasta Baron Cohen. That is realism. If you want realism, then go there. But 
nothing in this trailer, nothing about this movie has dictated that it's going to be realistic. And again, it goes back right. to the fucking handshake that a filmmaker is making with you. And it's like, everybody's ignoring that nowadays. Um, yep. No, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. It's like, it's, I mean, to me, honestly, it, it's a sign of ignorance to me. Yeah. Now, now this is understand what I'm saying. This is ignorance among people who actually do work as a film critic. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the general public. You know, even my wife is like, why do you refer to every movie by the person who made it? <laughs> you know, you know, it's, yeah. you know, it's not, you know, it's not Ryan Reynolds's six underground. No, it's Michael uh, or, you know, Robert De Niro's the Irishman. I'll always be talking about the new Scorsese film or the new, you know, Noah Baumbach film or whatever. And, and so, you know, you, you develop a different way of looking at things and talking about things and what have you, when you actually do film critic type work. And so I'm not talking about, you know, your average movie goer and movie watcher, but if as a film critic, your criticism of a Michael Bay movie is that, you know, it's unrealistic and, you know, has some clunky dialogue and, and blah, blah, blah. My response is partly get the hell out of here. I mean, I already know that that's, <laughs> you're not enlightening me in any way. You're not telling me anything I don't already. Now, if you want to tell me, I've seen Michael Bay's movies, and I think this is a crap example of a Michael Bay movie, well, then you have my attention. Yeah. And then at that point, you're going to tell, like, I'm going to ask you, why do you think that? Like, what, what, what yep. are your, what are your qualifications for that? And, you know, it just goes to like, it goes to like, um, what I've told people before, which is, is that being a critic being a critic is is really tough because if you're doing your job right, you're having to take in a lot, not just film content, but content all over the place. Like just not not just one single avenue of art, because film in a lot of ways is is multiple arts all cobbled together into a Frankenstein bastard child. Um, so you knowing more about everything in life that as it comes to art it makes it better for you to understand film and how film works and how you can get the most out of film. And I feel like there's a lot of like quote unquote critics and we're not talking about like, you know, even some paid professional critics, they take art, they take film as the only art, which it's just not the case. And the more, you know, the better, more informed you are as a critic. Now I'm not saying this to, ground level film fans. I mean, they can do whatever they want to do, but I feel like there's something inherently wrong when you're the only reference that you have for things are films like, okay. So like to get back to six underground, what I loved about the film is that it approaches things from <laughs> like, I think that you probably are better qualified to talk about this. Um, it approaches it in the way that a lot of like, adventure novels approach things if that mm -hmm. makes sense yeah. like like there's a lot of like um there's a lot of military novels that this reminds me of um in a lot of ways and they reference that a lot because of the way that they are telling the story now if film critics knew this stuff or like were interested in this stuff they'd find this very fascinating that this is kind of taking the clancy the Can clancy techno novel 
and turning it on its ear in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, you're right. It's it's like taking that genre and kind of getting away from the restrictions of realism. Exactly. Exactly. And and no, you're exactly right. Like, uh, you know, a lot of times when people will talk about, well, you know, the timeline was convoluted uh, or, you know, I couldn't figure out what, you know, what part was when and things like that. Uh, that happens a lot in those books. They'll either use like datelines like show you, you know, you know, this, the, you know, July 3rd, you know, 1994. And then there's going to be a chapter set then to give you some background. And then the next chapter could be, you know, 2018. And then the next chapter could be in the seventies. Uh, I've seen, uh, uh, read some books that have done, uh, something where it just says now, and then it'll say then, <laughs> uh, above a chapter and so you just know that this is the present timeline and then we're going to have a variety of flashbacks to a variety of different times and so I think that the idea being you know linear storytelling uh, at times can get a little bit tedious because if if there's a climax somewhere in the present then if you have to do all of the past, 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 then finally we get to the stuff going on in the present, you may have lost everybody. Absolutely. Everybody feels like, well, then I've read 200 pages of background on this thing. When's something actually going to happen? And so what they do is put you in the present when all this action is taking place and then give you slices of backstory uh, through flashbacks. And this one is kind of almost like little baby origin stories for each person on the team. And, and they don't really take that long. It's not like they, they take a long period of time. And, you know, that's one thing that I was going to mention to you that, that I thought about this movie is it feels like a comic book that isn't from a comic book. You know what? You're right. That actually is a perfect summation of this, of this movie is that it is a comic book without a comic book. Yeah, because yeah. and I mean, even sometimes like the shots themselves, the very, very tight close ups, mm -hmm. the way that it'll be framed, like you'll have the big wide shot, you know, almost like some kind of splash page in a comic book showing you this big new location. Mm -hmm. And then you have these narrow shots of, you know, people driving in a car or, or what have you very, you know, narrow close ups and everything. And so at times, some of the individual shots kind of reminded me of panels in a comic book. And then the idea of giving little origin stories to each of the characters along the way. And I mean, come on, you know, a, a you know, billionaire uh, who decides to devote his life to fighting crime or, or international <laughs> uh, terrorism or what have you. And so as I was watching it, I don't really like to take notes during movies because I just like to get into the flow of it. But I did jot down before I forgot it uh, that I said it's it's it was like a, you know, a comic book, but not based on a source material comic book. No, absolutely. It, it feels like a Greg Rucka kind of like entry into into comic book land. Um, because of the fact that it's so it takes its tropes from from literature like it really does feel like that and you're you're absolutely right it's it's kind of interesting how it feels like that but what i love is that it's just the feeling it's not the actual actuality of it it's not based off of a comic book it's it's just 
it's an original film. And I feel like this movie is a the best case scenario for anybody who wants to like, you know, anybody who's like, like, oh, you know what? I'm just tired of these. I'm tired of like MCU. I'm tired of like all these ongoing series. I just want to see straight action film. That's a lot of fun. I mean, you can't go wrong with this movie. Like that's, yeah. it's just, it's brand new. And I think that I, what I like about the film is how it does take those conventions everything that you have every kind of like issue that you may have with like conventional action and kind of flips it on its ear in a way that's a lot of fun but still manages to tell your typical action story like it it, there are certain things in it that action fans are gonna normally if it was just a straightly told story would roll their eyes, literally roll their eyes on some of these things. But because of the way that they've earned the right to have certain things like the Ryan Reynolds speech to get the team together, they've earned that because of how, how hard they worked on this film to make this film just like, you know, 10 degrees different. It doesn't have to be a complete 180. It just has to be like 10 or 15 degrees. That's, Give me that and and give me a, this kind of fucking action, like where it's unrepentantly R-rated and gory and <laughs> man, right. yeah, I'll go with it. Right. Yeah. It, uh, you know, and, and one of the things that I really liked about it, I mean, to be very specific to the film itself and, and not just talking, you know, genre and filmmaker mm-hmm. and things like that is the visual style of it. And it it has this interesting combination of, uh, you know, at times it almost looks like a first person shooter game. Yep. Uh, but just very briefly, you know, I mean, if I made people just go, oh, God, you know, that kind of thing. Just briefly, just like in moments where that would work. It has that kind of perspective. Then you have the person who's like kind of like the parkour guy. Mm-hmm. You know, number four, number four. Yeah. Uh, the guy, the guy who can, you know, who, by the way, was uh, Roger Taylor in Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes, he uh, was. I was looking <laughs> at drummer. his. Yeah, I was looking at yeah. his his filmography. I was like, this kid's coming up in the world. Yep. Yep. I recognized him immediately. What can I say? I played drums. And so uh, <laughs> I noticed drummers in movies. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but, you know, then they would go almost with like a GoPro with him. Yes. Like he was, you know, wearing the camera. And so you would get this first person perspective of him running, jumping, you know, leaping over a gap between buildings, you know, whatever, sliding down a banister or whatever it would be. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, your variety of uh, practical combined with some CG detailing and, and cover up and everything like that. And it's amazing because, you know, I had mentioned earlier the John Wick movies and and whether or not somebody would compare this to a film like that. Mm -hmm. But this does for your car chase, explosion, gun mayhem kind of fighting what John Wick does for the hand-to-hand combat fighting, which is it's priding itself on not cheating. Yep. It, it, I mean, instead of saying, oh, this is the moment that this is probably going to start to look fake, cut to something else, there really aren't that many quick cuts. I mean, it's it's more going almost to like a slow motion emphasis that says, hey, look at this, as opposed to cutting away. I mean, it's it's very much, you know, wanting to to show you the sleight of hand. 
and to yeah. show you what they're doing uh, rather than cut away or, you know, get some distance before something explodes so that you can't tell that a mannequin just flew out the window uh, or whatever. I mean, it's just right in on the action with some of the best, you know, no cheat uh, cinematography and action movies that I've ever seen. It it definitely is. And that that brings up this like great point about how. The action, like, you know, people complain, like people complain about budgets, like they, like they're paying more money for some fucking movie, like, and and they're not. And I, I get tired of that because you know what, if somebody wants to spend $200 million on a movie, they want to spend $200 million a movie. It doesn't affect me other than if it's not a hit, then you know what, maybe that, that studio won't be around. I don't know. But, um, I see everything on the screen on this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like like you were saying at the beginning of the top of the show how both this and the Irishman close to 400 million dollars used but each of them showing like showing what um showing every dollar on the screen but in different yep. ways. This is like Michael Bay coming back going like and it and it makes sense when you look at his filmography that he wants to do something physical. Like, and what I mean by physical, I mean, is that like, you know, this guy has done five Transformer movies in the last, in the last 12 years. That means that like for, I think it was from 07 to 11, he did a trans, like he was in Transformers Landia, like having to deal with CGI for that long. And so it makes sense to me that his last film, like his last, uh, his last movie that he directed in 2017 was a, was a Transformers movie that he would make, he would go in the opposite direction and make something really physical. And like research, I found that yes, ILM handled a bulk of the digital effects, but a lot of the digital effects was compositing which is a big difference than actually creating some of this stuff. Like a lot of the work that they did was like wire removal, compositing people into scenes that would just be too dangerous for them to be in. But like the actual physicality of cars flipping, cars crashing, um, Mm -hmm. people running down buildings, which literally happens in this movie or jumping from building to building. There's a, there's sections that are played in Hong Kong in the middle of the night that actually they filmed and then they put people into them so that it wasn't as dangerous, but the physicalness is there. And I think that there's an, like you said, there's an urgency that comes out of that stuff. And that, it also has some, uh, some great drone use. Oh yes. But you know, not, instead of, instead of just being the like, Oh look, fly over the city and see how cool everything looks. Uh, they use some, uh, some, some drone type shots uh, to really give some of the the action like uh, a three dimensional feel. No, absolutely, you're a hundred percent right. I'm, I'm thinking mostly of the infinity pool sequence. Yes, yes, and uh, and where one of the characters is literally hiding down under uh, the water in the mm-hmm. pool, and they give you an aerial shot where you can see him clinging to the sides of the pool, and you see the other people closing in. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just some, some great little, uh, cutaways to, uh, some drone moments that give you a really nice, uh, perspective of, you know, it's never 
choppy action. You always kind of know where everybody is and where everybody is supposed to be. And you have a sense of the scale and the geometry and geography and what have you of it. And so they just use a lot of interesting angles to help give you that perspective. No, you're 100 percent right. Like that. It's interesting how he has evolved as a filmmaker from going from like the sexy shots that he has all the way up until like, say, Pearl Harbor and Bad Boys 2. And then how he starts changing and putting purpose to the sexy shots. And I feel like this and 13 hours like combined as a one two combo of like I'm changing. I'm going from like. I have purpose with everything. And it's not to say that he didn't have geography before, but it always felt like his, like, I, I, I hate to use the words, uh, like, I hate to use the term sexy shot, but it feels like that's what they are. They finally have purpose. Like, before, they always felt like, oh, okay, well, there's the kid in slow motion, like, you know, shooting a gun with the American flag over his head, which served no purpose other than to, like, like, you know, satisfy some kind of weird need. But now in Six Underground and even like uh, 13 hours, everything like uh, like those sexy shots are connected in the way that the same way that and please, guys, don't get mad at me that I say this. But in the same way that David Fincher is able to connect his version of a sexy shot to how the film is being told. And, and, and I think, you know, part of it is is just as obvious as the improvement of technology. I mean, I think you become a better filmmaker, but I think there are plenty of filmmakers out there, Bay being an example, uh, you know, James Cameron, uh, you know, Christopher um, Nolan, you know, plenty of people who probably have even better visions in their head than what winds up on film because the technology just doesn't exist to realize it yet. Okay. And so as that technology is coming to life and people are mastering it, then they're getting to be able to put more and more of this on the screen. You know, a lot of these guys have probably thought like this for 20 years, but then now somebody is saying, Oh yeah, we can do that. No. And it winds up in the film. No, absolutely. You're you're right. I didn't even think about it like that in, in, in that kind of in that kind of in those types of terms. But yeah, it's, yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons, you know, that Cameron is just for forever in between making movies yep. is his idea of what he would like to put on the screen is something that folks are telling him, yeah, we could do that, but it ain't going to look very good. And so he's like, well, then we're going to sit around and pioneer the tech that will allow it to look good and then we'll make the movie. And so I don't know that I'd like that approach because I'd rather have more movies from him uh, than have him, you know, hibernate for, you know, five, seven years while he waits to uh, to put a film together. But, you know, another film that did that was Gravity. Yep. You know, I mean, they had had that idea uh, for forever and and not until they put together some of the technology and the camera rigs and the way to shoot it. Uh, did that film finally come to life? But everybody would agree from a visual standpoint, it was worth the wait. It definitely was. And for Cameron, it's going to be, it's already 10 years, yep. 10 years between films. Can you fucking believe that? <laughs> 2009 was Avatar and we're not getting like right now. That's 10 years. Like I still am blown away by that, that it's 10 years since Avatar was released and we're not going to get another Avatar film for what another three years? They say I think yeah, I think it's for sure, and it'll probably be delayed even more. I mean, like they they started filming, 
And we know that it's in the process, but Avatar took five years to make. So I would not be surprised, like you said, like like Cameron gets into that deep dive. And I think that yep. Bay, like Bay, is funny because you can tell that he uses he uses the, he used those Transformer movies as like almost like graduate school. Like mm-hmm. let's let's go ahead Absolutely. and do this. Exactly. I mean, and, and one of the things that he could get away with is when you're shooting something that is based on kind of like robots and, and things like this, then CG renderings of stuff probably didn't bother him as much. Yeah. Whereas if you're doing something that is at least based in the quote unquote real world, I'm not saying realistic, but the real world, Mm -hmm. then it's much easier to spot something that doesn't look good. And so I think you're right that, you know, I mean, he probably didn't really plan it that way. He was making movies that interested him because that's the movie he wanted to make. Yeah. But I think it was kind of like going to school for a while to figure out how you could make a rock or um, bad boys or Armageddon or something like that look way more realistic now than it used to. Absolutely. And this is like the the product of those 10 years in Transformer in Transformersville is that yep. we get we get something like this that everybody should be like, I honestly think that the only reason why nobody is talking about this is that the push wasn't there and it's not in the theaters. Like if they had just done a, like a one week all in IMAX. I mean, could you imagine? Because my like the like when I watched it, I. I watched it in 4K. I think that you did the same because I think we mm-hmm. both both have Apple uh, Apple TV 4Ks and we have sets yep. that actually let us watch it like that. And it's just stunning the way that it's yeah. shot because Bay doesn't shoot for the small screen. He shoots for IMAX. He shoots yeah. for... Well, I mean, you know, in, and, and, and you can tell it in everything. Like, you know, it's not an accident that in that opening scene in Italy... You know, they're driving this like neon lime green getaway car. Yep. And and even, you know, Ryan Reynolds is like makes some joke, you know, acknowledges like, wow, this sure is a subtle getaway car. You know, the world can see us in this thing. Uh, but the point being exactly, you know, when you see this streak of color, you know, shooting across the 4K screen and everything like that, it just looks awesome. So, I mean, you can tell everything from, you know, color palette to just, you know, what people are wearing and, and all of that uh, is is playing into the visual aesthetic of the film. Absolutely. And oddly enough, um what a lot of uh what a lot of people will probably not see and understand is that um this was primarily shot in 35 millimeter. Yep. Uh of course they did shoot like from what I understand that they did shoot some of the stuff um with like a red um but it was like the 8k red uh, but uh, most of it is most of it the i think that the only stuff that wasn't was like drone stuff like anything that was over overhead because mm-hmm. of the fact that it's more convenient to shoot with with a smaller 8k than a huge ass 35 millimeter camera um right. but it looks like it looks exactly what you would expect if you have the right 4k monitor and you have apple tv then you're in for a treat this is a 
beautifully shot film, as you would expect from a Michael Bay movie. Um, one of the things that we didn't talk about, which I feel like uh, might get the short shift, but it's actually uh, it's to be expected with action uh, action films, are the cast themselves. I mean, he kind of got together this pretty badass crew of seven seven very game actors um, mm-hmm. for the film. I mean, starting with, of course, Ryan Reynolds, who I mean, is it is it safe to say that he's on a streak right now? That's kind of like like a pretty great starring like star superstar like streak. Yeah, and it and it was interesting because the one thing that I liked was he's still doing kind of the snarky thing that he's done, you know, all throughout his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, was of course doing an, in Deadpool that kind of made him perfect for that part, but it's toned down. Yes. It's like, it's like, it's, it's effective to me. It's like when they use it, it's funny and, but it isn't constant. And, and so I liked the way that he was, uh, in this film in particular, because at times after a while, that can get a little bit grating where like every serious moment, every character moment has to end with some kind of wisecrack or something like that. And it can get uh, a little bit, you know, tedious. And so, uh, I thought that, uh, his performance was, was, you know, nice to be kind of modulated off of that always at, you know, nine or 10. No, absolutely. It, it definitely was. It was interesting because it just, you like, he is, Tom Cruise, like, it's weird because, like, you watch the Mission Impossible movies, and Tom Cruise is, like, he's supposed to be playing Jim Phelps, the point person, which means that, like, you know, he really doesn't do a lot of action. He's just sitting there moving the chess pieces. Um, But his, like, I, I hate to say the word ego, but his ego doesn't let him, and he has to do the action. Reynolds is, like, at this point where he was, like, like, he is the Jim Phelps. He is the kind of, like, like point person operator that does some action, but a lot of it is dispensed through the whole entire cast and crew. And it, it makes things a little bit like, it makes it a lot more fun because you get mom, you get things like, um, Melanie Laurent, who like is basically an action. Like she's the action person in this movie. She's the one that's beating the shit out of people killing people she's like like the first 30 minutes of the movie is her like being a badass while the surgeon number five is trying to pull a bullet out of her body with like gushes of blood coming out (laughs) exactly as they careen in a car through the streets of italy exactly uh, trying to make their getaway so yeah it's and it's fun because it's like like people like melanie laurent who never get an action role or if they got an action role, like if she and five both like were cast in, um, were both cast in a mission impossible movie. Like I have a feeling that they would be more love interests than they would be like, like people that are doing things in the movie because you already got one. But I mean, this movie proposes that you can have more than one, which is a really weird thing to say about Michael Bay, who constantly, like who for a long time put women in a side role, but here right. it's like these two women are doing things differently than than what they would normally do in a Bay film. But it's also a lot of fun. 
to see. Yeah, I think I think it's like the sign of the times. Yes. You know? I mean, I think he's, you know, realizes that the uh, the, you know, male protagonist, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, the 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 hero and the guy with the, the saves the day and the guns and everything. And then he's just kind of like got the babe on his arm who just runs and tries to stay out of trouble. Uh, you know, that that is an outmoded uh, way of making one of these movies. And so he's got the, the women right in the heart of it and shooting and fighting. And, and so it's very much a equal opportunity action hero and heroines type situation. No, absolutely. And, um, like a good, like a, like a big shout out to him for casting Corey Hawkins and Manuel Garcia, uh, Rufo. Uh, who both play both play like major roles as three and seven. I mean, even seven, like like the Corey Hawkins role is like instead of Reynolds being the heart of the film, Corey Hawkins is the heart of the film, which I found interesting and fun because it allows him moments to shine. Whereas like like three, who's played by Manuel Garcia Ruflo, is he gets to be like the like like with Menelie Lawrence too, they get to be the dual like hardcore action roles. So it's kind of nice to see that Ryan Reynolds, though he's the main draw of the film, he is not like it's a true ensemble piece, is what I'm saying. And I love action ensembles because it's just it's it goes back to like what my dad used to show me with the Dirty Dozen and the Great Escape, where everybody can eat, so to speak. Like you, you don't have to have a single star. And them do everything. It's a lot more fun when you have these people interacting. Yeah, no, and it's and it's uh, and it's hard to do. I mean, it's 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 hard to have a group that big and not have someone just kind of get lost or disappear uh, for big chunks of the movie. And so I think they do a good job of um, of making everybody kind of have moments to shine. Absolutely. Um, so big, like all overarching, I think that it's like final thoughts. Uh, I mean, we really didn't talk about how much we, I mean, obviously I think that people can glean off this, this podcast that we really did enjoy the hell out of this movie, but uh, like, you know, final thoughts on Michael Bay's six underground. Yeah. It, uh, you know, I, I thought that it was a, a, a really pleasant surprise, uh, as far as the degree of surprise goes, I would probably put it up there with Hustlers. Um, uh, yeah. Those are two completely different films, but I just meant going into it thinking, eh, you know, let's see what this is really going to be. And then kind of being knocked out because of the fact that it so far exceeded your uh, expectations. You know, I, I think that, uh, it will probably do really well for Netflix and should do really well for Netflix because, you know, you look at something like the Irishman and my only question was, uh, you know, it's, it's release schedule. I was like, nothing says Thanksgiving, like everybody killing everybody, uh, you know, in, in, in a, a gangster movie or what have you. And yet, you know, millions wound up watching, uh, the Irishman over Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And so this is the kind of movie that I'm just like, you know, when you hit your, uh, your Christmas, uh, time off and, 
And um, I don't know, depending on how old your kids are and how liberal of a parent you are, my thought was once the kids have gone to bed, exactly, uh, you know, you you fire up this film and uh, and uh, kick back, and you know, it's just uh, you know, it's just a trip. I mean, it's 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 a ride. It's a lot of fun, and uh, you know, you'll be. I think the biggest surprise is is you're gonna forget you're watching Netflix. I think you're going to yeah. think that this was something that played in a theater six months ago that you missed and you just rented the 4K version off of, you know, Amazon or iTunes or something like that. And that you're watching a big, you know, tentpole extravaganza that you just didn't have time to go catch in the theater in the summer and not realize that you're watching a Netflix original. I I can't put I, I can't put a button on it the way that you can right then and there. Um, you you. You put you you put my thoughts succinctly better than I could. I will just add this much, which is that to go off of what uh, Scott said. So this is a I know this is going to sound weird and an insult, but this is a dad movie. This is the movie that the dads after the kids go to see Frozen 2 with the with, with the moms like th- this is what's going to happen. I'm not trying to say anything more than this is that this is a dad movie. This is a movie that like my dad would have watched and he would have let me watch um because that was the kind of dad my dad was at the time but it's the movie that like you know that that guys are going to want to watch that they can't necessarily show their kids um so they'll find time to do it like probably like i said having like it's ironic that we're taught that we talked at the uh at the top of the show about the politics of movies and like how like Disney just owns screens. I mean, literally, this is what's probably going to happen: is that all of the kids are going to see Frozen two or um or the Force like a I was going to call it the Force Awakens three, which it basically <laughs> is <laughs> the Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> They're going to go see the Rise of Skywalker, and then. The, the guys, like if they know about this film, they're like, okay, you know what? We can save $25 a piece to not go to that movie. You just go take the kids. We'll kick back here. Watch a little football. When football's over with, guess what? You're watching Six Underground. And it's going to be a lot yep. of fun. It's going to kick ass. And it's like, there's like to me, there's nothing wrong with that. Like this is like some great entertainment. Anybody can watch this as long as your tolerance for violence is it's pretty big because there's some moments that, I mean, literally you have a moment where a guy is stuck to a, to a sheet of metal because of a super magnet right next to a grenade. And if you ever wanted to know what happens to a magnetized grenade, fuck, you're going to find out in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And with that guys, I think that this is a big, like two thumbs up two big toes up. Uh, from me and Scott on Six Underground, I think that you guys are going to enjoy it a lot. Like he said, it's 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 not a Netflix movie. I mean, it is a Netflix movie, but it's not. It doesn't feel like this one, along with like The Irishman. I think that this is the way that I think that this is the way that Netflix should go, which is is that if you get great filmmakers, great filmmakers can't make things for the small screen. They just don't know fucking how it's not in their blood. Somebody like Scorsese, somebody like Michael Bay who have spent three to six decades filming for the big screen can't just stop doing that. But what they are given here is they're given the chance to do exactly what they want to do. And it's interesting now because we're getting these filmmakers. So I, I tell people, I'm going to tell people 
don't listen to the critics. I know that sounds weird because we're critics, but don't listen just, to them. Just listen to these two. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We know better than those guys and girls. <laughs> and with that, guys, we will be back. Um, we are like... We are going to do like trust me I assure you we are planning we are planning our Bong Joon-ho episode like we've talked about uh for the Scorsese episode we are we are planning on that this was just too delicious of a of a one off to not talk about but you will be getting our Bong Joon-ho episode or episodes just depending on how long it goes so until next time we will talk to you soon when hope and love has been lost and you fall to the ground, you must find a way. When the darkness descends and you're told it's the end, you must find a way. When God decides to look the other way and a clown takes the throne, we must find a way. Face the firing squad against all the odds, you will find a Dig down Dig down Dig down And find faith When you're close to the edge Or with a gun to your head You must find a way When free to defend